0: Almost like the world in slow motion. So interesting to see these kind of ongoing trickle of what I consider to be like two main themes. As we step back and take a look at the big picture here, I feel like we can identify two big themes in regard to this say, geopolitical confrontation between the West, specifically the United States. And Russia, but also by extension and maybe primarily China as well. And hello and welcome to the Northern Minor Podcast. My name is Adrian Pokebelli. And I've said it before, if you're Russia and China, do you want to get into a kinetic war, as they call it, with the US and Europe, or would you rather get into a financial war? Because it seems to me, from their perspective, the West, you know, when it comes to the big weapons in theory has quite a reserve it's kind of a highly risky strategy shall we say to confront the west on a purely you know physical level but as i was calling it in an earlier episode maybe the perfect crime really is to attack the west on a financial level because there's no fingerprints as far as if inflation gets out of control for example And what we see are two main themes that keep trickling. One is commodity supply constraining. And we've seen that since the very beginning of the Ukraine war and really emphasized when Olaf Scholz turned off Nord Stream 2, right? And who, you know, basically vetoed the certification. So self-inflicted sometimes, but nevertheless, if we just take a really big picture view we see less commodity supply being delivered to the west one could argue for example we just saw that with OPEC plus they are reducing oil supplies and the us says that's not a wise move so obviously the west isn't thrilled about that at least america's not i'm sure there are some people that are thrilled about less oil supply but generally speaking the west is not thrilled about that so we see this constraining of commodity supply shall we say to the west and On the other hand, we see this trend of de-dollarization. And again, you feel almost surprised to be saying it, right? Whether it is, you know, this deal between Brazil and China, you know, we're not going to use the U.S. dollar in trade. We're going to use our currencies, whether it was Saudi Arabia willing to take some yuan for oil. And I'm not an oil expert, but that seems to be significant. And then we hear of India and Bangladesh moving towards ditching the dollar in their trade. And there are other examples of this. So what's so interesting to me about this is this is kind of, again, what I'm tempted to call a perfect crime. Because it's a way of taking out your opponent without a direct confrontation. And of course, the U.S. with its massive debts, I mean, it includes Europe like they all seem incredibly indebted and they all seem incredibly vulnerable and i don't even think that say russia and china i mean they've probably discussed this i'm guessing but you don't even need to discuss it cuz it's actually pretty obvious when you're thinking in terms of well what are the greatest weaknesses of the us it is its financial situation it's also its strength as we saw with the freezing of russia's foreign reserves is also a, a big source of its power And this is also but a reason why countries may want to diversify from holding U.S. dollars, particularly in U.S. banks or U.S. treasuries, which it seems like are vulnerable to being seized. So we see these two themes, this reduction in supply of commodities and kind of just an ongoing trickle of stories towards de-dollarization. And like Jeffrey Christian says, this could take decades, but all to say, the wheels are in motion, and how does the U.S. respond? Because right now, if we look at China, it seems like the U.S. is the one that wants war. As China flies in the previous, I think it was president of Taiwan, to the mainland, Like it seems like China is doing everything it can, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that disagree with this, but... What I'm seeing is they're doing everything they can to avoid a confrontation and it seems like the US wants one. Shockingly and surprisingly as high risk as that would be as a way potentially of tying up, you know, China as Russia is being tied up with Ukraine. So, I mean, who would have thought we would have ended up here? And this is part of the problem because you can say, well, Pokebelly, you're totally wrong about, you know, about this entire thing. You don't know what you're talking about. But the problem is, is this is the perception that exists out there, because it doesn't even matter if what I'm saying is real or not. In a sense, it's real as a narrative, which is kind of the reality that we all live in, is a series of narratives. And when you look on Twitter, and I'm seeing African leader after African leader kind of come out and show incredible skepticism towards the West, the fact that this perception exists, that the U.S. actually might want war, in Taiwan, all of that soft power, all of that goodwill that I would argue we started to lose with the Iraq war and then lost again with the COVID vaccines when they're all hoarded by the West at the expense of the global South, the goodwill is no longer there. And now you have leaders openly speaking out against the West and particular the United States in very, you know, Effective oratory. You know, so this is the perception that exists, and that in itself is a reality, whether it's factually true or not. So, in order to get some more clarity on this situation, Jeffrey Christian has accepted my request for him to come on the show and at least give us some clarity on how he sees things, especially in the gold market. So, the interview went a little longer than I planned, but there is so much good in there, it is a feast. For all of us that are paying attention to all of these matters, which seem deeply intertwined, as we've been mentioning for weeks. So all that and more coming up this episode with some amazing news stories. I mean, you see Glencore trying to take out tech for what seems like a measly $23 billion. You see the car companies take different strategies in regard to mining and how involved they should be. You see, BMW is not into buying a mine probably pretty wisely. After hearing Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs speak out and say, you know, this is probably not going to end well. The car business and the mining business are very different businesses, which when I heard that, I just thought that just has a ring of truth to it, doesn't it? So it all sounds fine and great that we get the government involved in mining, that we get car companies involved in mining. But you know the reality is it might not all turn out that well So anyways, there is a ton to sink your teeth into, as usual here, from the Northern Miner. And speaking of which, if you would like to join the community, visit our next Global Mining Symposium, which is on May 25th, 2023 in Toronto. Maybe you work for a car company and you started listening to this podcast. I highly recommend to join us at the Northern Miner Global Mining Symposium. Just go to events.northernminer.com. Dot com And you can register your interest. The next one, the Q2 Mining Investment Conference, is on May 25th, 2023, and it is free. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, a big M&A attempt by Glencore on tech. Tech rejects $23 billion takeover bid from Glencore. And this is Cecilia Jemazmi on northernminer.com. Canada's tech resources, the country's largest diversified miner, has rejected an unsolicited acquisition proposal from Swiss commodity trader and mining company Glencore and one wonders whether the Canadian government would even let such a takeover occur. The proposal represented a 20% premium as of March 26th, according to Tech, and would be worth about $23 billion at Friday's closing prices. The board's decision, Tech said, was unanimous. It noted that Glencore's bid was to acquire the company and subsequently create two businesses, which would expose Tech shareholders to thermal coal and oil trading. The Vancouver-based company also said the merger would increase geopolitical risk for its shareholders, given Glencore's presence in jurisdictions such as the Democratic Republic of Congo and the inclusion of oil trading in the metals unit would undermine its appeal to investors. And we have a quote from Chief Executive Jonathan Price, who said in a statement, quote, all of this would negatively impact the value potential of tech's business, is contrary to our ESG commitments, and would transfer significant value to Glencore at the expense of tech shareholders. Tech announced in February it was switching its name to Tech Metals Corp and spinning off its multi-billion dollar steelmaking coal unit into a new company, Elk Valley Resources. Tech had been weighing options for its metallurgical coal division for over a year, as the commodity is used in steelmaking, one of the most polluting industries. And we have a quote from Tech. The proposed separation into Tech Metals and Elk Valley Resources is in the best interest of Tech and all its stakeholders, it said on Monday. And we have a quote from Chair Sheila Murray, who said, quote, the board is not contemplating a sale of the company at this time. Tech is instead urging shareholders to approve an already announced separation of Tech Metals and Elk Valley Resources at an April 26th meeting. The two companies had discussed a potential merger in 2020, but those talks did not advance, according to Tech's letter to Glencore published on Monday. So, kind of seems like Glencore is trying to pick up tech on the cheap, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else. And it seems like that's the board's reaction as well. It's like, no thank you. <laughs> it's just unanimous. Continuing on, Agnico Eagle becomes sole owner of Canadian Malarctic. So, this is also Cecilia Jamasmi on northernminer.com. Agnico Eagle Mines, the world's third biggest gold producer, is now the sole owner of Canadian Malarctic, the country's largest open pit and one of North America's biggest gold mines. The Canadian company has also added to its portfolio the under-construction Odyssey Mine, the Wazamac project located in the Abitibi region of Quebec, as well as several other exploration properties located in Ontario and Manitoba. So kind of the slow and steady Agnico Eagle sure has been picking up the pace in the last year or two here. The inclusion of these new assets comes as Agnico Eagle completed a transaction on Friday with Pan American Silver and Yamana Gold. The deal granted the Toronto-based miner ownership over certain subsidiaries and partnerships held until now by Yamana. Pan American and Agnico Mines trumped in November Goldfield's bid for Yamana with a joint U.S. $4.8 billion bid. Agnico Eagle said the completion of the deal consolidated its presence along the BtB gold belt in Quebec. Quote, this is a region with low political risk and high geological potential, where the company has a competitive advantage from having operated there for 50 years, it said in a statement. So now, Agnico Eagle is forecasting production to grow from 3.28 million ounces in 2022 to between 3.4 million and 3.6 million ounces in 2025. So this is on the, I mean, they're really catching up to Barrick, aren't they? I mean, Barrick forecast, I think, 5 million and came in somewhere like maybe four and a half or something like that. So they are catching up quickly, continuing on. Speaking of Barrick, Barrick Gold and Papua New Guinea ink new deal to restart Pergera Mine. Also Cecilia Gemasmi on northernminer.com, the Porgera gold mine in Papua New Guinea, PNG, halted since 2020, is nearing closer to resuming operations as the country's government, Barrick Gold's local subsidiary, and New Porgera have inked a new deal to speed up the mine restart. Through the New Porgera Progress Agreement inked late Thursday, all parties have committed to push Porgera's reopening forward, starting by filing for a special mining lease. And we have a quote from CEO Mark Bristow, quote, it's been a long journey, but in the process, we have secured the buy-in of all stakeholders. The reopening of the mine would represent another victory for our host country partnership model, which has been so successful in Tanzania and has now also been adopted for the new Rico Ricodic copper gold project in Pakistan. Bristow noted, Barrick and its partner China's Zijin Mining became embroiled in a dispute with the government and locals in 2020 over benefit sharing. While attempting to renew the mine's license, the standoff was resolved in April 2021 through two deals concluded last year, which gave the PNG government a majority stake in Porgera. Barak and Zijin agreed to have their stakes. New Porgera, as the mine is called, is 51% owned by PNG stakeholders, including local landowners and the Inga provincial government. Economic benefits will be shared 53% by the PNG stakeholders and 47% by Barak New Guinea Limited. It's so, interesting development over there. Mali, to review and renegotiate mining contracts, and this is Reuters via mining.com. Transitional authorities in Mali will review mining contracts after an official audit of the sector advised that the state was not receiving a fair share of gold mining revenue, the Council of Ministers said on Wednesday. Mali is one of Africa's largest producers of gold, which is its top export. Companies operating in the country include Barrick Gold and Resolute Mining. The council said an action plan would be implemented and would include creation of a commission to renegotiate mining deals a move to repatriate cash earned from gold exports and the adoption of a mining sector environmental code and we have a quote the action plan will be implemented via a participatory approach including the mining companies themselves soon after coming to power in a 2020 coup the military junta Vowed to review mining contracts signed with companies by previous administrations, gold exports from Mali rose 8.4% to 69.3 tons in 2022, reflecting a rise in industrial gold production over the same period, data from the statistics agencies showed earlier in March. And continuing on, Mexican president proposes tougher mining laws, shorter concessions, also Reuters via mining.com, the Mexican government's proposed overhaul of mining laws, including shorter concessions and tighter rules for permits, drew a quick warning from industry leaders who fear it could undermine the sector's growth prospects. President Andres Manuel López Obrador offered the draft reform on Tuesday to lawmakers in the lower House of Congress, which would sharply reduce the length of mining concessions to 15 from 50 years. That is a dramatic shortening there. Mexico, a major mining country for decades, is the world's top primary silver producer, as well as a top 10 gold and copper miner. So, I mean, if we just back up for a second, I mean, to state the obvious, we are seeing an increase in resource nationalism, aren't we? The initiatives, which still must pass various legislative steps before it could be enacted, would also add new requirements to obtain mining and water permits, establish a new obligation to disclose mining impacts, and require miners to give back at least 10% of the profits to communities. Very interesting. Continuing on, Ford in $4.5 billion deal for EV Batteries Material Plant. Let's just take a look here. And again, Reuters via Mining.com. US car maker Ford has joined PT Valley Indonesia and China Zhe Zhang Yu Cobalts as their new partner in a $4.5 billion nickel processing plant in Indonesia the company said on Thursday. Now, we've been hearing sounds from Indonesia for months that they want the metal to be processed locally. So this appears to be working here, doesn't it? The investment is Ford's first in the Southeast Asian country and underscores growing appetite among automakers for raw materials used in producing electric vehicle batteries, which account for about 40% of a vehicle's sticker price, aiming to cut costs and close the gap on EV market leader Tesla. That is a pretty shocking stat, that electric vehicle batteries account for about 40% of an electric vehicle's sticker price. That's almost hard to believe, but apparently that's the case. Volkswagen, Europe's biggest car maker, this month said that it would invest 180 billion euros over five years in areas including battery production and the sourcing of raw materials. I mean, no wonder these companies want to get into mining. It's a hard number to believe. 40% of a vehicle's sticker price is the battery. Indonesia, which has the world's biggest nickel reserves, has been trying to develop downstream industries for the metal, ultimately aiming to produce batteries and electric vehicles. The proposed high-pressure acid leaching plant will be located in Pomala in southeast Sulawesi, where Vale operates a nickel mine. Vale and Wayu began construction of the plant in November, and commercial operation is expected to start in 2026. And we have a quote from Christopher Smith, Ford's chief government affairs officer, who said at the signing ceremony, quote, Ford can help ensure that the nickel that we use in electric vehicle batteries is mined, produced within the same ESG standards as part of our business around the world. And just a couple of more car stories here, just a couple of headlines. BMW bets on design and recycling, not mining, to lower battery costs. Also Reuters via mining.com. And this is very interesting because... Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs was kind of warning against this idea that car companies should be buying into mining, and he was basically saying it requires a completely different kind of expertise. So BMW seems to be heeding that warning. BMW is betting on efficient design and recycling to bring down battery costs and is steering clear of investing in mines. Its finance chief said on Friday, setting it apart from some competitors digging deep into the supply chain. CFO Nicholas Peter said in an interview, quote, We don't think it is right to invest in mines. We view it as more important to get back raw materials from cars and other products. You know, it might be a safer business. Peter, who is due to retire in May, also said the carmaker was experiencing a strong first quarter and said he saw no reason to doubt the company's ability to hit its forecast set earlier in the month at an 8-10% margin in 2023. BMW has its own battery cell research center in Germany, but has left large-scale developments to partners placing multi-billion euro orders with CATL and EVE Energy to produce battery cells in China and Europe. And scrolling down, the company is the only major German carmaker working on a hydrogen-powered passenger vehicle, which CEO Oliver Zipps said he could imagine going into commercial production in the second half of the decade. If other industries like trucks step up to help provide a hydrogen charging network. One more on the car front. Mercedes-Benz is able and willing to invest capital in mining. So a different approach from Mercedes, and that is according to the CEO. This is Reuters via mining.com. Mercedes-Benz is willing to allocate capital to support or ramp up a mining business. Chief Executive Olaf Kelenius said on Thursday at the Carmakers' annual environmental, social, and governance conference. Quote, we have fundamentally made the decision that if a deep sourcing opportunity presents itself down to the mine, we are able and willing to allocate capital to that, Kalinius said. And just a few headlines here. Chinese lithium producers set price floor as demand evaporates, according to sources. And we're going to see that in metal prices, how lithium continues to fall dramatically. And finally, just a couple of stories on deep sea mining here. It's not going away, the UN to start taking deep sea mining applications this July. So, despite a lot of protest from countries such as France and Chile and Palau and Fiji, who want a global moratorium, the UN is still taking applications from July. I mean, again, Nautilus and and Deep Green, and I think it's changed its name since then. I interviewed the CEO of Deep Green. To me, it seemed like a pretty one of the least damaging forms of mining that I'd ever heard of, particularly in regards to emissions. Like, basically, they just need to pick up these metallic nodules off the seafloor. And we also, there's a a study that just came out. This is Frick Ells on mining.com, which basically seems to confirm that. Studies show seafloor cobalt nickel mining dramatically lowers battery metals' environmental impact. So the study was done by Benchmark Mineral Intelligence seems to confirm that it's actually not that damaging to the environment, at least in terms of emissions, far lower than traditional mining. Again, my bigger concern, if we're talking about the oceans here, are these nets. I mean, nets are terrifying to me as far as what they do. I mean, think of it just collects everything, anything and everything in sight, whereas sending some, you know, small... You know, machine to the bottom of the ocean floor to pick up these metallic nodules seems to me to be far less damaging to the ocean environment. I am not an expert, though. That is just thoughts from stories I've heard and people I've talked to. So, those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. Let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond and that is trading at 3.45% and that is 0.09% lower than last week. So yields continue to drop and turning to precious metals. Gold is trading at $1,980.59 per ounce. That is $16 higher than last week Silver is at $24.01 per ounce, that is $0.91 higher than last week. Platinum also higher at $987.73 per ounce, that is $23 higher than last week. Palladium is trading at $1,460.08 per ounce, that is $48 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is a penny lower at $4.08 per pound. And iron ore is also lower at $122.19 per ton. That is $0.31 lower than last week, almost unchanged. Aluminum is $0.02 higher at $1.09 per pound. Lead is $0.02 lower at $0.96 per pound. Nickel is $0.18 higher at $10.73 per pound. Tin is also higher at $11.72 per pound. That is. 46 cents higher than last week, and cobalt is higher at $15.84 per pound. That is 34 cents higher, and lithium continues to fall at $33.33 per kilogram. That is almost $6 lower than last week, and when we started tracking this only four weeks ago, we're at $51, and now it is at $33. So lithium Continues to take it on the chin, and uranium is unchanged at fifty dollars and, coming up and thirty five cents per pound. And I'm pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Dollar per pound. He discusses recent Zooming moves out in the gold market, precious metals where doing we are well in the industrial metal dollarization trend, overall. Why China might not want to replace the dollar, basically trending as a world reserve currency, as, whole, as well as investor demand. the Silicon Valley banking crisis has affected demand and overall sentiments so a lot to sink your teeth into i hope you enjoy it and i will see you on the other side Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome back a true expert in the gold business, someone who's been on this program many times, Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group to the Northern Miner podcast. Jeffrey, welcome back.
1: It's great to be with you, Adrian. I always enjoy our conversations.
0: Well, I sure do as well, and I feel like we're incredibly lucky to get you on at such an exciting time in the gold market. It can go on and on for months where it's just kind of bland, and then all of a sudden it's just one of the most exciting things going on in the market. We hit $2,000. Tell me, from your perspective, what are the main driving forces that you're seeing in the gold market right now?
1: Well, you know, obviously the big thing has been the bank Problems, three regional banks or specialty banks uh, in the United States and Credit Suisse. And that has caused a lot of investors to sort of sit up straight and say, is this the beginning of that big economic and financial set of problems that everybody has been predicting for some time? And so, you know, you've seen gold prices rise almost $200 in the last several weeks. And a lot of that is concerns about financial market stability and banking industry stability, and whether or not this is the beginning of that bigger set of problems coming home to roost.
0: Interesting. So you've discussed this in previous interviews, whether it's on this program or otherwise, that you see basically a recession coming and basically at some point a crisis of some kind coming and that it'll be great to own gold at that point. And so you're saying you're getting questions wondering, is this that moment?
1: Yeah. Okay. That's exactly okay. what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, people ask me, well, what's going to cause the next recession? You can say with 100% probability that there will be future recessions. The question is when, how long, how deep, and what causes it. And recessions are not caused by any single thing most often. You know, usually a recession is caused by a combination of factors. You know, what we're looking at now going forward is that we think that by late 2023 or into 2024, you're going to have fiscal constraints, not only in the United States, but elsewhere. It'll be a, a reduction in fiscal expenditures, which you've already seen a big de- reduction in the United States and Europe and Japan over the last few years. But it's going to continue to tighten You'll see real supply constraints, not supply chain problems, but actual supply constraints. And you're starting to see that in some sectors of the economy. You'll see a cooling of consumer demand and a cooling of business demand for goods and services. So business investment in plant and equipment will start slowing business purchases of goods and of of people will start slowing. And you're starting to see that in some sectors. And those are really the combinations. And then as that transpires and evolves, you should expect to see some problems in obscure corners of the debt market. The pundits on the internet keep talking about the treasury. The treasury is going to be the last place where you have problems. That's the U.S. treasury. That's the Closest thing to a risk-free asset you have in the debt market, it's going to be some obscure corner of of the debt market. You know, in 1990, we went into a recession with the savings and loans organizations having financed the purchase of commercial real estate at outrageously unsustainable prices. And you had you know, 7% interest rates at the time. In 2000, it was the dot-com burst. In 2007, 2006, it was the collateral-like mortgage obligations mm-hmm. and the no-detail mortgages that were going out to people. It's going to be some obscure corner. So when Silicon Valley Bank, which is a pretty darn obscure corner of the debt market, blew up three weeks ago. People said, "Okay, you've been saying look for some obscure corner of the debt market for the problems to begin. Is that this? You know, so we've been getting a lot of questions about that.
0: And your answer is, is what?
1: (laughs) Our answer is that these are the foothills of the crisis. As I said to one client, these are not black swans. You know, everybody sees them coming. They're on the horizon now, but they're getting closer. And we think that what we're seeing is the, the foothills of a bigger problem that might be nine months or 12 months or 15 months away. But we do think that we're headed toward that kind of situation, similar to what we saw. You know, so we've compared this to March of 2008. Bear Stearns went bust. Gold prices shot up from $750 or so at the beginning of 2008 to more than $1,000 for the first time ever when Bear Stearns went bust, and everybody thought, okay, this is the end. Within a week, the price was back down to $900, and it was really until September before the real problems started to emerge. This was an indication of the things to come, March of 2008, September 2008. You can go back to 2000 it was March of 2000 when the dot-com bubble started to deflate. It didn't burst until really like the first quarter of 2001, but the signs that it was going to pop started to really strongly emerge March of 2000. And so we're, we're talking about March of 2023 being like those previous marches. You know, this is a warning shot. And if you're paying attention, you're going to pay attention to
0: this warning shot. And so tell me if I remember this wrong, but in 2008, my impression was that precious metals went down with everything else, but maybe they were the first to recover. Is that correct? And if it is, do you expect to see a repeat?
1: That's exactly correct. And we do expect to see a repeat. Not exactly as much, but you know, we're telling our clients, you know, don't buy gold at right now, you know, it's gotten over 2000, we do think it will go over 2000 and way over 2000 on a sustained basis, but possibly not for another 12 to 15 months. So we're telling our clients don't panic and buy now, but be ready. And if you see the gold price soften in the second and third quarters of this year, that would be a time to add to your portfolio.
0: Yeah, because the sentiment, I would argue, is so strong right now. In a sense, the fear, as you call them, the storm clouds are growing. There is a sense almost, uh, as you say, it's almost like the first intimations of a panic. Mm -hmm. And I think there is this sense that a FOMO, a fear of missing out, the sentiment is pretty strong for gold right now. And you're saying go against that sentiment because there will likely, who knows, there is likely going to be better opportunity. Ahead,
1: It's interesting. We saw a surge of demand for gold from high net worth individuals, family offices, and institutional investors in January. And that surge was based on greed as opposed to fear. You know, and, and what happened was at the end of 2022, the beginning of 2023, people sort of said, well, what happened in financial markets last year? And the best performing asset class was treasury bills. They were up about 4.4%. The second best performing asset was silver, which was up about 3% from the beginning of 2022 to the end of 2022. And the third performing asset was gold, which was like off 0.1%. The fourth was off 11%. And all the other asset classes, you know, large cap stocks, small stocks, U.S. stocks, foreign, non-U.S. stocks, bonds, commercial paper, real estate... All of those things were off 11 to 22 percent over the course of 2022. Cryptocurrencies went from three trillion dollars of market cap at the beginning of 2022 to about 800 billion. So they lost two thirds, more than two thirds of their value over the course of 2022. And what we saw in January was a lot of institutional investors saying, "Well, gold and silver, you know, if I had had gold and silver in my portfolio last year, I would have done better." So we saw this greed factor kick in to gold, especially, but also to some extent silver in January. That cooled Mm -hmm. off in February, and then the banking crisis came, and now it's, okay, it's greed and it's fear. (laughs) Yeah, so we got two very strong reasons to buy gold.
0: Absolutely. So (laughs) from your desk then... What do you see happening? I mean, you're in New York, your CPM group, you deal with all sorts of clients around the world, from what I understand. So what are you seeing in terms of gold flows, in terms of the movement of gold back and forth? I assume you kind of track it on a certain level. What are you seeing?
1: It's interesting. One of the things that you're seeing, and it's not just gold, it's, it's all financial assets. There's a flight to quality and there's a flight to security. So one of the things that you've seen really over the last couple of years, but it's continuing now, is that investors have been moving out of gold ETFs as a group, but there have been two things that they've done. They've moved out of the smaller ETFs into the top ones. If you look at gold held by ETFs, that hold physical gold, that's been declining really for a year or two. But if you look at the top five etfs they've actually been garnering additional holdings so you have some etf investors saying i still want to have exposure to gold i still want to have it via etfs because of the ease of sale when i feel that the price has risen high enough but i want to have my gold etfs the biggest most liquid ones because when that price goes high These smaller, less liquid ETFs may not be in a position to really allow me to capitalize my gains. The other thing you're seeing is ETF investors saying, I don't want my golden ETF. I want it in physical form that I actually own. You know, I want to know I got gold bars or coins and they're in a depository or they're in my hands or they're in my basement or they're in a safety deposit box. You know, so you're seeing a flight to safety. And you're also seeing a flight to quality. You know, one of the other things which you probably want to talk about later is central banks. There's a meme out there or a trope that central banks are rushing into gold and out of the dollar. And both of those things are wrong. You know, central banks are not dumping their dollars. Their dollar holdings actually have risen as a percentage of their foreign exchange holdings over the last few months. And they're not necessarily rushing into gold. If you look at Central banks, you know, there's like, what, 180 governments and central banks in the world or monetary authorities. There were about 21 or 22 that bought gold last year, and only about nine of them bought more than half a million ounces of gold, a significant amount of gold. Russia was a net buyer, but they were buying and selling all year long to finance their imports during the sanctions and war. China bought gold, 2 million ounces in the last two months. India bought some gold, and the other six were all Islamic state central banks. Yeah. So when you start saying, well, central banks are buying a lot of gold, it's not a generalized central banks. It's Islamic central banks with a few extras, and India, China, and Russia all have special issues that are pretty obvious. You know, So the real question is, why are Islamic central banks stocking up on gold? And that then does a do loop back to investment demand because you say, okay, let's look at the Islamic world from Libya, Morocco looks okay, but from Libya to Indonesia, you're having those kinds of political, economic, religious, and social issues start to rise again. And you're seeing the central banks say, we probably should be stocking up on some gold.
0: Well... Yeah, this is incredibly interesting. I mean, it feeds into this idea, you know, when you saw it in some form with these, you know, bank runs, is there is, again, the first cracks of almost like a crisis in confidence is starting to emerge here. And I think what a lot of listeners might think when you start saying, okay, these uh, central banks or the Middle East and... Russia and China are the ones, you know, accumulating the gold. It sounds like the BRICS, right? Or this kind of, you know, people, there's so many different directions we can go here. But what are your feelings, say, on the BRICS and this whole idea? We see it first with oil going a little bit being sold in the Yuan. We're seeing other, you know, was it Brazil and China? just came out and said they're no longer going to be using the dollar. So anyways, all to say, what are your feelings about this whole BRICS situation in regard to the gold market?
1: Well, I think, you know, there is a desire to move away from the dollar, but there is a realization among central bankers that that has to be very small and slow because the liquidity of the dollar versus other currencies is very large. And, you know, There's a lot of stuff being said about like a a BRICS currency or the 5Rs currency and a a currency backed by gold. And if you look, none of those central banks are talking about any of that. You know, none of the BRICS central banks have said we want to have a single currency. Brazil, China, India, South Africa have not said, "Ooh, it would be smart to tie our currency in with the ruble. (laughs) No one's doing that. Putin is saying certain things, but like if you look last week when he was meeting with Xi Jinping for three days, at one of their press conferences, he said, I have told the Chinese government that Russia will gladly use the yuan for settlement of international trade with with third-party countries. And Xi Jinping looked like he wanted to vomit. (laughs) He's like, the last thing we want is big pools of Chinese yuan in the hands of other central banks that will say, I want to get rid of those wands. It makes our monetary policy management that much more difficult. And we have watched the U.S. suffer from the fact that so many dollars are owned by other people. And we watched the British before them and the French before them and we know that you know the idea of a reserve currency or a currency that's used for international trade settlements that complicates monetary policy and often leads and contributes to the decline of economic power of that country on a global basis we've seen it with France we saw it with England we're seeing it with the United States, or we will see it over the next several decades with the United States. So there's, there's the central banks of the BRICS are not interested in having a, a single currency. They're not talking about it. Only gold promoters are. And none of the central banks want a, a currency convertible to gold, because if your currency is convertible to gold, people are going to say, here's your currency, give me your gold. And central banks are trying, especially developing countries, central banks, are trying to build their gold reserves as a portfolio diversification of their monetary reserves. They don't want people taking it out, right? So then the gold promoters on the internet say, well, we're not talking about a convertible currency. We're talking about a currency backed by gold. But a currency that's backed by gold and is not convertible, you know, that's like a car without wheels. You know, it's not backed by gold if it's not backed by gold. If it's backed by gold, here are my currencies, give me your gold. So there's a lot of nonsense being talked about in about the international currency regime, the international currency system. Central banks are dumping the dollar. They want to, you know, they want to diversify their, their monetary reserves. They want to have choices. If you look, you know, Ghana created a program that they started in January, they've talked about it for a few years, called Gold for Oil. And basically what they said was we import diesel and we have a paucity of dollar reserves to pay for that. And it's not just dollar reserves. The Ghana Central Bank doesn't have a lot of foreign exchange reserves, but it needs to pay for imports of diesel on a continuing basis. And it doesn't really have the foreign exchange reserves, but it does have gold that it gets paid a portion of domestic production. So it does have gold reserves. So it has said, and in January it said, it started, you, if you're importing diesel or other oil, petroleum products into Ghana, we will gladly pay you in gold. And if you don't want the gold, we'll sell the gold and give you the dollars, the dollar value of the gold. Now, again, the pundits on the internet say, well, you know, Ghanaian central bank doesn't want to trade in the dollars. It's like, no, the Ghanaian central bank can't trade in the dollars because it doesn't have dollars to trade. And if you look at these deals, the petroleum products, the diesel is denominated in US dollars. The gold is denominated in US dollars. If you take gold for settlement for your diesel imports, you're getting gold denominated in dollars at a rate denominated in dollars. And if you don't want the gold, the Ghanaian government will sell the gold and give you the dollars. So it's not a movement away from the dollar and it's not a movement to trying to settle international trade in gold except in so far as that one particular central bank needs foreign exchange to pay for its petroleum imports and has gold so you've got to really dig down and understand what's going on because these superficial pronouncements by gold promoters are more often than not not accurate
0: So in regard to that, then, say the gold being traded in U.S. dollars is just to ask kind of a potentially simple, maybe a complicated question. Is that because the main exchanges, metal exchanges are like, is it the COMEX? Like why is it traded in dollars and what would threaten that? Yeah.
1: Time waits for no one. And time is the biggest threat to the dollar stature not just gold, but everything trades in dollars. You know, you have something like sixty percent of monetary foreign central bank foreign exchange reserves are US dollars. You have something like 70 to 80% of private financial wealth denominated in dollars. So the dollar has this massive liquidity that allows for ease of transactions. Right? Yeah, when I started in the business in the late 1970s, Petroleum in Europe was traded in pounds sterling per metric ton of sour crude in what was then the ARA market. Now it's Brent. you know. But by the early 1980s, it was being traded in dollars per barrel. And that was because the dollar had a liquidity. The oil was being sold and priced in dollar terms. And then it was like, well, if I'm paying you in pounds sterling, A, I got to find pounds sterling to pay you. And B, I am beholden to the pound sterling dollar exchange rate. So if I just pay you in dollars, you know, I'm saving my transaction costs. I'm saving my friction. I'm using a more liquid. Denominator for the transaction for payment in the transaction. So, you know, in the early 1980s, in 1981, I was working for a commodities trading company that had gold loans out with various Eastern European and Latin American central banks where we had borrowed gold from them. Given them dollars. They were all having financial problems. They needed dollars to stay afloat. So they would do a swap, give us their gold, take the dollars. And then they started getting to be insolvent. So we were going through debt rescheduling talks. And I remember I was a very young man and I was having dinner with a economist from one of the Eastern European countries, central banks. And after a tough day of negotiations, And he said, You don't understand, Mr. Christian, if you owe a bank enough, you own it. So we do have a lot of cards to play. And the US owes the world so much that the dollar is there. You know, so when you start saying, well, let's move away from the dollar, it's like, okay, if you have 60% of your monetary reserves in the dollar and 20% in the euro and 10% in the yen, and the other 10, 20% in everything else and you want to get rid of some of those dollars, you have to find those other currencies. And the liquidity is just not there. So if you start generating additional currencies, euros, pound sterling, Swiss franc, yen, yuan, you create inflationary pressures in each of those economies. So central banks, unlike gold promoters, know that. And they say, okay, we'd like to see a multipolar international currency regime, but it's going to take decades for that to happen. And it's going to take decades for several reasons. One is you have to have the liquidity of those currencies without generating the hyperinflation. Second thing is you need to change the laws in most countries so that private individuals and corporations can actually own and hold their wealth in those other currencies, You can do that in Turkey, you can do it in India, but in most countries, if you have a bank deposit, it has to be in the domestic currency. So those domestic laws have to change. And then the third thing is people's practices have to change. As I said, in London in the 1970s, the LME priced all of the base metals, it traded in pound sterling and oil was traded in pound sterling. By early 1980s, all those things were dollar-denominated in their trades. But that's the 1980s. And the pound sterling had really lost its stature as the monetary reserve asset of choice in the 1930s. You know, you're talking about 50 years of habit dissolution. So you've got to have more liquidity in those currencies. You've got to have changes in the banking regulations in countries at a time when people are saying, wait a second, you want to loosen the banking regulations even further? You want to complicate things? These are guys who can't even match the maturity of their debits and assets in one currency. And you want to be able to say, oh, well, you can have other currencies in your bank account. You know, you got to change that. And then you've got to change the habits. You yeah. know. So yeah, Ghana would buy its diesel in dollars if it had the dollars. And I don't think the Chinese government and central bank really want a lot of yuan being built up in central bank holdings in other countries.
0: That is so interesting that in a sense they don't have any incentive is what you're saying to be a reserve currency.
1: Yes, they would like to be an important currency and you know for 40 years they've been working toward that they were coming up with how to make the yuan convertible and how to integrate the yuan into the international currency regime they were studying that in 1981 i can tell you you know and 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 you know 42 years down the road they have made some of those reforms and they have more reforms to make and they know it's going to take another several decades to get to that point where they feel comfortable Having the one as one of many viable currencies for use in international trade and capital flows.
0: Okay, excellent. So, just as we wrap up, (laughs) I have just a couple of things that I want to circle back to, which is this ETFs. You know, as we potentially sail into a pretty big storm, if it is analogous to 2008, and we're in March, how reliable are ETFs in your view? Like do you, as far as sailing into a major economic crisis, how do you feel about them? I don't know, would you recommend them? Or do you say, okay, don't put all your eggs in the ETF basket? Because that's what gold is for, is for not having any liability risk on the other side. What are your thoughts on the reliability of ETFs through a major storm?
1: I have mixed views. Like In August of 1998, CPM Group sent a letter to major gold producers and their representatives saying that you guys should stimulate investment demand by creating an exchange-traded gold fund that held gold on an allocated basis you know, off the market and gave investors the ability to buy and sell gold units as easily as they, they sell shares. But you know, two years later, I was quoted as saying that I thought that we would look back on ETFs in general and say, what were we thinking? Well, I, I was wrong in the latter one. You know, And ETFs have spread throughout the financial system to stocks and bonds and currencies, as well as commodities, perhaps the detriment of financial markets, but it, they are there. Our view is that ETFs are good, but you have to be a little bit selective. There are some of the companies that have ETFs that we're very comfortable with, both in terms of their management and their ethics and their financial ability to stay afloat. But there are other companies that have ETFs that we just don't feel comfortable with their ethics or that they're large enough or that they're well managed enough. So. I think that there you have to be very selective in which ETFs you choose, and we're seeing that in the market. Investors are saying, I want to have my gold ETFs and silver ETFs in the more liquid, the more well financed and better managed companies. But we always say if you want to own gold, own gold. Hmm. So at the end of the day, you want some physical gold either in your possession or someplace where you can get. And mostly, I mean, there are some ETFs that you can exchange the ETF shares for physical gold. You have to look at the price, the costs of making that transition in each case, and compare that to the idea of buying gold and holding it in a physical allocation someplace. If you want to own gold, own gold.
0: It makes sense, I mean, because you think, if you know, in these hypothetical scenarios where you have major wars. I mean, do you want to own an ETF or do you want to have physical gold in your possession? And it seems that it's a pretty clear answer. Put it this way, I wouldn't feel super safe if you have some war with China. I mean, who knows if that ever happens, but being an ETF, you know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, So you mentioned constraints at the beginning of our conversation and i just want you to maybe just elaborate a little bit more by what you mean by that there might be constraints you mentioned it wasn't exactly supply chain but maybe like not enough metal is that what you're referring to and and yeah. can you just expand on that and what does that mean
1: well it's not just metal it's stuff you know it's all kinds of things it's food supply if you go back to 2007 2008 we had rice sales being rationed in the United States, you had rice riots in certain Southeast Asian countries, you had issues about long-term food supply, you had the Chinese government and companies buying plantations in Brazil and Central Africa and Southeast Asia to grow maize and other food crops for importation into China. And it wasn't just China that was looking at food security. So you've got food security, you have housing issues. There's not enough housing and there's not enough suitable housing to meet the demographics of the populations in most countries of the world now. And there are constraints, both structural constraints and perhaps legal and financial constraints to the construction industries really saying, I'm going to take a bite." And I'm going to, to build the kinds of housing that the public needs now, you know, because and, and ultimately it comes down to the fact that you can still make a bigger margin for McMansions than you can smaller apartments and smaller houses. The kinds that we built after World War II around the world, which are good for both starter homes and empty nesters. And the same isn't true in the auto industry. And you have auto constraints there. And, you know, the auto industry basically says, I have such a large margin for these large trucks and SUVs compared to the margins I make on smaller vehicles, you know, outside China, where the Chinese government says, no, we want you to buy small vehicles and people buy small vehicles in the rest of the world, like in the United States, you're now seeing the vast majority of light duty vehicles sold as passenger vehicles, being these very large vehicles. And it's just because the margin is greater in yeah. in that. So there's a lot of structural issues and you can go through all sorts of sectors of the economy and say, okay, you know, we have enough steel right now, but will we have enough steel in 12 months? And there's a series of issues and people tend to smudge them all together. It's like, is there enough copper now? Yes. Will there be enough copper in 12 months? Mm, could be a lot tighter. Will there be enough copper in twenty four months? Probably yes. Will there be enough copper in ten years? Well, that's another question. yeah, mm. and you're seeing that in copper right now, for example. You've got people who are bullish on copper because they think there's going to be a shortage in ten years. yeah, and frankly, they'll probably be dead in ten years. <laughs> and they should be investing based on you know current and near current market trends.
0: Okay, excellent. So, just as we wrap up, then, uh, do you have any final thoughts for investors, gold investors, precious metals?
1: Well, one of the topics that's been coming up with us is preparing to capitalize on high prices. You know, because you have you have investors who have been holding gold for a long period of time and they have profits there, and some of them believe that we're facing an economic and financial Armageddon. And others understand that economics move in cycles, and we may be headed toward a recession and a financial crisis, and it could look nasty, but it probably is transient. This isn't the end of economics and finance and capitalism as we know it. It's just a really rough patch, and rough patches occur every 10 to 12 years since 1982, and every six years between 1945 and 82 and every two years prior to 1913, you have to say to yourself, I'm holding gold against the time when things are nasty and gold prices go well over $2,000, you know, and when I say our expectations are, you know, 2,400, 2,500, not 10,000, but are you going to have the wherewithal mentally to capitalize in those gains? You Don't have to sell the stuff, you might own continue to own it but buy puts against it, mm-hmm. or you might buy puts and pay for them with call spreads. But are you going to have the mental capacity to say, Let's be realistic, this isn't the end of the world as we know it? But my gold is now worth three times what I paid for it, so let me buy some puts because you know we may see very strong gold prices and silver prices 2024, 2025, depending on how the world develops. But then three years later, you might see lower prices. And I say that because if you look at history, that's what's happened repeatedly. The gold price shoots up during times of economic and political stress, and then things get better to some degree, and the gold price comes down. It doesn't come down to where it was prior to the crisis, but it comes down and it comes down sharply. And a wise investor is going to say, let me Prepare today to capitalize not only on the high gold prices, but also the economic things. So, I want cash because when we go into a recession, there's going to be stuff that I can buy on a bargain basement price, fire sale prices. I want gold because gold will probably spike higher. As you said earlier, it didn't spike higher in 2008, but it went from $900 in late 2008 to in 2011 with the knock on sovereign debt crisis and downgrading of the US Treasury in 2010, 2011. So, you know, I want gold. I want to be able to capitalize on that. I want to continue to own gold after that, but I might lighten up my holdings. I might take some profits. And I don't want debt. You know, so get rid of your debt, get rid of your weak stocks, you know, those things that are really highly speculative. Put your money. You know, don't dump all stocks, but you know, look for the kinds of companies that make stuff that people will buy even in a recession. You know, you know, get rid of your debt, have cash, and have gold and silver.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jeffrey Christian. You never disappoint with interesting and wise advice. I love the put strategy. Thank you once again for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. My pleasure. And there you have it, another super interesting interview with Jeffrey Christian of CPM Group with a very grounded analysis on what's going on in the market, Thank you once again for joining us. And if you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.